It's a great song. That's really the heart of uh, that song that we just sang is the heart of John's gospel that we as a church have been uh, working our way through. John's gospel is one of the three or one of the four Greco-Roman biographies written of Jesus in the uh, in the years after Jesus's life here on earth. And John wrote this gospel. John wrote this biography um, as Jesus's best friend. And he wrote it. He says in John 20 um, that he's written what he's written in order that we would believe in Jesus and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. That, that this gospel that we're working our way through is meant to inspire hope in us. It is meant to inspire faith, to work faith in Jesus you know, in our hearts and in our lives. And, and, and belief and believing and faith in John's gospel is never a noun. It's always a verb. That, that, it, that our faith is never something, it's not like, it's not some set of um, doctrines that we ascribe to. But it's an active trust in a person. That believing in Jesus is always believing in. Actively trusting in who he is and all that he has accomplished for us. And so that's, what, that's the goal of John's gospel. That's why we are working our way through it. We're in John chapter 3. I'll invite you to turn there now. John chapter 3 is, the, is, is one of the most famous um, chapters of John's gospel. It includes probably the most famous verse that we're going to cover this morning, the most famous verse in all of the Bible. You see that football game, right, with guys holding up, you know, with their clown hair. You see it written on Tim Tebow's eye black. John 3.16, right, for God so loved the world. So that's where we're, we're at right now. John 3 is uh, a conversation that Jesus has with a, one of the religious leaders, one of the elites uh, in the society in first century Israel with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee, which meant he belonged to a certain school of religious teaching uh, within Judaism. He, he took the scriptures seriously. He took truth seriously. But unlike most Pharisees, who are usually the bad guys in the story, Nicodemus is actually open. He's open to considering the claims of Jesus. He's open to, to, to figuring out who Jesus is and what he's all about. And so this is the first of several encounters that Jesus has with different people. And we're meant to, to see ourselves in that. We're meant to see how we can encounter Jesus in these various encounters. So in the next chapter, Jesus um, encounters and has this encounter with a Samaritan woman, someone who is, who is not a follower of the God of Israel, someone who has not lived a very um, conservative religious life by any stretch. And so we're meant to see ourselves in this. And all of us have um, parts of us that are very religious, and all of us have parts of us that have been very irreligious, like the Samaritan woman at the well, and, and we'll see as we go through these chapters how Jesus encounters those people, and we're meant to see ourselves in that, and, and we're meant to, to come and encounter Jesus ourselves through this. So we ended last week at verse 10 uh, of uh, John chapter 3, where Nicodemus asks Jesus a question, and Jesus has been talking about the new birth that, uh, that, that what he has come to do is not, not to just make bad people good, but to make dead people live, as we often say, that, that God has 
that Jesus has come in order to bring about a new birth, to bring spiritual life, to bring a reset, a refresh, an upgrade of the operating system, that Jesus has come to to bring life. And and Nicodemus is confused, and he says in verse 9, how can this be? Which is really a question that says, how can this happen? How can this new birth come about? How can this happen to me? Jesus kind of incredulously says, you are Israel's teacher and you don't know. You should have understood this. You should have seen this in the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus says. And we'll pick it up at verse 11. And we'll read down to verse 21. I tell you the truth, this is Jesus speaking, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And he says, verse 1, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done in truth. passage is is gold right i mean you could mine this you could mine this for you know i'd love to do that sometime i'd love to go really really slowly through this right and it takes some like john's going to take a decade as it is so we're doing this passage together and i want us to see the relationship between love and judgment i want us to see the relationship in this passage between love the world, I want us to see the relationship between love and judgment. So us but verse 18 says that those who do not believe stand condemned already. There's a relationship here in Jesus' talk and Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus. He's, he's, He's clearly laying out a relationship between love and judgment. You know, in in most of contemporary spiritual talk, we airbrush out any talk about condemning or condemnation or judgment. We certainly don't want to talk about those things. But why all of this talk from the mouth of Jesus 
right around these great statements on love. Right? We have, God, for God so loved the world. We've got these great, I mean, and, and John 3.16, I agree, it should probably be underlined as a summary of John's gospel. And we'll talk about that today. But there's a relationship. Jesus is, is, is making a, a connection for us between his judgment, which is what the word is translated here, condemn, means judgment, an evaluation that's not going to go favorably, and his love. So what is that connection? Why all of that talk? You see, in our broken world, we, are, we often find that love and justice are in tension with each other, right? That either we have to act loving, and if I act loving, then I have to somehow ignore justice or ignore judgment, ignore anything that would um, critique or correct or oppose that in order, or be, and, and for me to, to make a judgment, for me to make a, an evaluation, for me to critique, is, is to ultimately not be loving. We feel that in our broken world, that we feel that these things, these, the judgment and love are in tension or in opposition with one another. And Jesus, though, says that they're not. And see, we're, we're kind of embarrassed um, in, f- in fact, Jesus would say not that they're not only not in tension with each other, that actually they need each other. That in order for his love to be a holy, perfect, unfathomable, eternal, infinite love, he needs, it has, the, the, the same side, the, the other side of the same coin is his judgment, is his anger, is, is his, even his wrath, his anger that opposes sin. See, we're, we're embarrassed by our anger, right? When I get angry, afterwards I usually feel embarrassed because I, I want to explain it away and say, well, that wasn't really me. That wasn't the real me that was coming through, but the reason I'm embarrassed is because it was actually the real me that was just showing through, and, and I just didn't have the self-control to keep the real me hidden any longer. And so the really self-centered, self-absorbed um, Kevin kind of shone through, and it got shone through in anger, and so I'm embarrassed by that, right? We don't like our anger because it really reveals more of our brokenness most of the time. Some anger is righteous and good, but God's anger is not like our anger. His anger isn't flippant. His anger isn't, like, he's not throwing temper tantrums. God's not cranky. He doesn't get in a bad mood. His anger is very different, and and so what I want, the, really the, the purpose of what I want us to catch this morning is that our conception of God, that our understanding of who God is, is actually fundamental to who we are. That, that what we believe about God's love and judgment is, is fundamental to who we are. In many ways, it's, it's analogous, it's similar to that of the relationship between a child and a parent. And if a child, if a parent relationship, if the parent is always permissive and always just do whatever you want, what do you feel like doing? Oh, I'm not going to make you do that. And, oh, you did that, but all right. You end up with a pretty spoiled child, right? 
On the other hand, if your parent-child relationship is always one of judgment and anger, always no, as opposed to an always yes parent, an always no parent, I mean, you're abusing your child, right? And so the understanding this relationship between God's love and his judgment is critical to what makes for equitable, healthy stewardship. That's what I want us to see this morning. And so the first point that I want us to see in this text is that God's judgment is actually an expression of his love. That God's judgment, God's wrath, his anger, his opposition to sin is actually an expression of his love. And I know for some of us, especially those of us who are maybe kicking the tires on Christian faith and maybe aren't, haven't fully settled on Jesus, haven't fully committed ourselves yet to him, and, and, and you have doubts and questions and, and wrestling with this. You, and, and, and in fact, many in our culture would say, well, you know, I just can't believe in a God who condemns. I can't believe in a God who judges. I'll only believe in a God of love. I'll only believe in a God of love. And certainly don't, I, I, I don't mean to disrespect your views. I don't mean to disrespect, but the question I have for you is where do you get the idea that God is love? Where do you get the idea that, that if there is a God, if there is a um, supernatural, all-powerful being, that he should be all love? Where do you get that idea? Like history? The news? Like, do you look around the world and say, hmm, if there is a supernatural, almighty being, certainly his only characteristic is love. When I look around the world, that's all I see. Like, when I walked outside this morning, I was, it was a struggle for me to believe in a God of love. It was minus 40 or whatever it was, right? Like, if there was a God of love, why, why would you make minus 40 temperatures? So you read the newspaper, and, and it's like, is there any good news in here? So you read the history book, and what, what, are, what are history books a story of? Wars and oppression and people behaving badly. So... And, and, and tragedies. Like th- those are the defining features of history, right? So where would you get this idea that God's a God of love? Actually, where it comes from is the Bible and from Jesus. He's the first. We don't get it from other world religions. No other world religion would say God is love. That's a Jesus exclusive. That's a Christian faith exclusive. Jesus directs our attention to the story of the snake, right? He says in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So what's, what's the deal there? Um, he's referring back to a story in Numbers 21. I'll invite you to turn there. So we're going we're gonna to read that story. Numbers 21 is, is telling a story of the Israelites, right, who have, are coming out of Egypt, from slavery and bondage in Egypt, from their taskmasters, their oppressors, and they've come through the Red Sea, and now they're in the wilderness. They're in the, in the desert, a place of no light, and they're on their way to the promised land. You may, you may know the, some of the story of this, of, you know, um, of the Prince of Egypt, or maybe you've seen the movie, or the Ten Commandments, or you, you may know some of the story of this. And 
Part of the story is, is that every day God provided manna from heaven, which is a word that means what is it? Which means, and, and it got that name because people woke up one morning and the ground was covered with this stuff that kind of looked like snow, I think. And they picked it up and said, what is it? And it was, what is it? And it was a bread-like substance that they could eat. And it was how God provided food for them in the wilderness, in the desert. So in Numbers 21, verse 4, we read a bit of a story here. It says this, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Stop right there. That's funny. Right? Read that last sentence again. There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. There's no bread, and we hate all this food that we have. And in fact, in Hebrew, it's the same word. <laughs> it's ladies like you go into your closet, opening it up, and saying, I have nothing to wear. Guys going to the fridge, there's nothing to eat. Kids in a house full of toys say, there's nothing to do. I'm bored. Right? It's this complaint culture. Like, there's, they're surrounded by bread, and they say, we have no bread, and we hate this food. We hate the bread we have. We hate what you provided for us. That's, that's actually, I think, of, I think it could be written about us, to be honest, our culture. We are a complaint culture. We are raising the most, um, I lost the word, starts with an N, entitled generation in history. No offense, young people, but you're entitled. <laughs> no, I mean, it's not, it's not mean, but it's true. Where we actually, and, and, and adults, seniors, middle-aged, whatever I am, we're no better. We act like we deserve better. Everyone around us is always failing me, and it kills gratitude in me. What is, so, what, so the question here is, what does love do? What does love do with whining children who don't appreciate all the good things they have? Right? The Israelites have all kinds of good things. They have freedom. They have each other. They have God. They have manna. They have all kinds of good things, and they're complaining. So what does love do? Does love say, I'll just let you go. I'll just let you devolve into the worst possible version of yourself. No, love sends poisonous snakes. So verse 6, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Guys, no ideas here. Don't get any ideas. And they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed to the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Look and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. 
Then when anyone is bitten by a snake, look at it, the bronze snake, and be healed. God made the promise, look and you'll live, and they looked and they did. What is love like? Love sends poisonous snakes and then provides a champion. someone you love ravaged by addiction? What do you feel when you see someone you love deeply ravaged by disease? Tolerance? Love wants to impose consequences. Love wants to root out the cancer that's destroying you, literally or figuratively. C.H. Giffel says in the commentaries of his life, I've quoted this often, the more a father loves his son, the more he hates in his son the liar that he's been shown. One of my favorite quotes of all time. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in his son the liar that he's been shown. Those things that are inside that are ravaging, that are killing, that are destroying, that are, that are le- devolving him into the worst possible version of himself. And so if you can feel anguish and pain over someone's condition, perfect God who made those people feel the anger and pain over the thing that is destroying them, the object of your love. You see, anger is not the opposite of love. Anger is not the opposite of love. So often we confuse that and we think that 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 we can either be angry or we can love, that, that those things are opposites. But what's the opposite of love? Hate is the opposite of love. And the highest form of hate is indifference. The highest form of hate is indifference. I'll just let you go. I'll just let that thing go on and destroy it. And I'll do nothing about it. That's the highest form of hate. Love gets involved. Love gets angry. Love gets God is a God of love and anger. He's not cranky. He's not quick-tempered. It's not that, hey, I lied today, so uh, Brooke's going to fall on my head tonight like as I'm walking down the street, right? Like, it's n- I'm not going to break my leg because I told a lie yesterday, right? He's not quick-tempered. It's not that, you know, he's got a, a tolerance level and, he, and he'll let 10 sins add up and then, boom, lightning hits you, right? It's not, he's not cranky. He's, but, but what the way he set the universe up And the way his love expresses itself is that he is opposed to that which is destroying you. That he is set up in opposition against that thing that in you that would destroy you. 
So he doesn't give like the nasty con like when I'm at my worst as a parent, right? I'm I'm dealing out consequences when I'm inconvenienced. They the kids have done something that inconveniences me or that annoys me. And and so I'll just mete out some nasty consequence or raise my voice in anger because it's inconvenienced me. It's 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 irritated me. He's not like that. He he meets out natural consequences. Which is what the best of parents do when we're at our best, right? Where we, where we see these things in our kids and we're like, if 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 we just let that go, you know, for 20 years, you're not going to be a pleasant adult. And so we've got to root this out. We've got to root it out. And so we 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 meet out natural consequences. And so if you reject Jesus, he is opposed to you. He's opposed to you. And you know, I, I love the analogy that F. F. Bruce. It was on. It was on the uh, this uh, quote for before the service, and it'll be up there again during connection time. But I have it here again. F. F. Bruce says this. He says, "In a gallery where artistic masterpieces are on display, it's not the masterpieces but the visitors that are upset." Think about that for a minute. In a gallery where artistic masterpieces are on display, it's not the masterpieces but the visitors that are upset. So if you go to the Louvre and you stand in front of the Mona Lisa and you're kind of like, eh, kind of boring. You haven't told me anything about the Mona Lisa, but you've told me a lot about Jesus, right? When I look at a Picasso and I'm like, yeah, that guy wasn't very good, which is what I think. I'm not saying anything about Picasso. I'm just revealing something about me. He goes on. He says, the man who depreciates Christ or thinks him unworthy of his allegiance passes judgment on himself, not others. And he doesn't believe is condemned already. You see, we're all in the judgment line. We're all in a lineup. We don't know the order, but we're all in a judgment lineup where we come to the end of our life and we'll be evaluated, we'll be judged, we'll be critiqued. And we're moving one, every day we move one step closer. Every hour we move a little bit closer to that day of judgment. And what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3 is that those who would believe in him, he just comes and takes them out of the lineup by baptism and judgment on themselves. You get my reference because I got mine. So if you don't believe in Jesus, you're just staying in line. You're staying in the line. You're condemned already. Okay, those are my notes. I'm sorry. All right, second point. So God's, God's love is an, ex God's judgment, God's anger is an actually an expression of his love. Second, second point, final point, is that the cross of Christ is the expression of God's love. That God's judgment is an expression of his love, but the cross of Christ is the expression of his love. You see, Jesus said in John 3, when he's talking about the snake, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's talking about his crucifixion. The word lifted up there um, is, is, a, is a dual meaning word. It, it means physically lifted up, 
but it's a word that, that carries with it um, a, a sense of, of exaltation, of, 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 of bestowing glory upon. It's, it's, a, it's a word that would be used in connection with a coronation, a crowning moment. And so Jesus is lifted up physically on the cross, cross but he's also exalted. John, the cross is a crowning moment for Jesus. And John, it's, you know, it's all about Jesus becoming king to his people. I am king. And he puts a sign above him that says, King of the Jews. And he puts a purple robe and a crown on his head. That's his crowning moment. And it's the cross of Jesus where we see God's love and justice and his judgment, his anger, his condemnation, and his great love on display. For God so loved the world that he gave one and only son, and he gave him up over to death on the cross. The word so and God so loved the world has two meanings. I don't know how, you, how you've read that, but it, people read it actually one way or the other usually, and maybe you didn't even know that. I've never really heard that um, described. I've, I've tested this out a little bit. It can mean two things, the word so. It can mean um, God loved us so, this way. God loved us this way. This is the way that God loved us, that he gave his son. But it can also mean the intensity. It, it can mean the, to, to the extent of his love. God loved us so much. This is the way God loved us, and he loved us of his grace. God so loved the world. And I've been quoting verse 18 a fair bit this morning, but I've only been quoting the second half. He does not, whoever does not believe stands condemned already. The first part says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, is not judged, is under no condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no judgment for you. Romans 5.1 says we have peace with God where the hostility is gone. He's buried the hostility. The hostilities are done away with. And so the invitation for us is to believe in Christ. To put our whole belief in who, who he is and what he's done. If your conception of God is one of only condemnation and judgment. All and, and the messages you've received about God is only about his standards and how you've fallen short and how you don't measure up and it's always a no and it's always anger. It's always even hatred. If you're in that position of that exact statement, you are condemned. Or if your conception of God is one of only acceptance and love and he always says yes and he has to forgive, in danger of being that spoiled child, that entitled child. But if we can see God's love and justice, not in opposition to each other, but actually as expressions of his character, of that he is love, we can grow healthy in our Christian faith. So let me give you a test. Let me give you a test. What, what happens? 
happens to you when you see more of him. But how, however it happens, but when, when more of your sinfulness is at stake, how do you react? How do you react? Maybe, maybe you've, you've sinned, you've rebelled, you've failed. Your selfishness is revealed, your greed is revealed, and, and you're like, wow, I'm more messed up than I thought. I'm more sinful than I even thought I was. And, and I've walked in sin today. How do you react? How do you respond? Do you say first, eh, no big deal. God's got to forgive me because he's a God of love. He's got to forgive me. pray today. Got to clean up my act first. Got to get it together. Let me chastise myself for a little bit. Let me earn God's love a little bit today. Let me begin to measure up because I feel far from him today. Maybe you need to repent. Or thirdly, do you say, Lord, your love for me is even greater than I thought. And the revelation you've been to me about who God is has changed me. I encourage you that that's what happened with Peter. That his love and his anger were not enough. But actually his that is unlimited, life that is infinite, not only in duration, but also in quality. It's not only talking about a life that never ends. It's not like you're going to go on and be bored and complain for the rest of your life and into eternity. It's actually that supreme love. It's, it's, it's life to the full, life to the max, life like you've never known. Unlimited, not only in duration, but in quality. And he says it was not enough. take these uh, simple words and this great teaching of Jesus and would you um, convince us of your great love today? Lord, I pray for spoiled children in our midst and Lord, maybe we're, we take advantage of you and we just presume upon you and we, um, we never think about standards of right and wrong and justice and your anger against our and opposition against our sin. Lord, would you pull us into a place of of a right um, reverence of you, a right disposition of, of holy fear towards you. And Lord, I pray for abused children in our midst. I pray that you would set us free and show us the great love of the Father, the great joy of the Father over his children, who delights over his kids with singing. Lord, that you would set us free to come to you and, in, and to revel in your love. So that, Lord, both all of us, so that we could grow up into spiritual heights 
Lord, your great love for us would be the last and mightiest word in our lives. Your love that is not indifferent to us, but a, your love that is involved with us. Your love that, that leads us to everlasting, eternal, un, uh, unhindered life. Work that in our midst, we ask. In the name of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name.